This morning we are continuing on in a series we just started last week on the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most depressing books in the Bible, in a way. I mean, let's just put our cards out there. It is not easy reading. It has never made one of Oprah's greatest books lists. It's not on the library short list of things to read on the beach this summer, but it is essential reading for anyone who wants to live in the world as it is, to face up to the realities of life in a world that isn't what we wish it was, and to face those realities with wisdom, to know what it is to live in the world as it is with wisdom. All year we're looking at the wisdom literature of the Bible. Wisdom literature different from laws in that it's not trying to lay out a series of do's and don'ts. It's trying to model what it is to live in the world as it is. To pay attention to life. To understand the order that's there. And to try to bring your life into line with it as much as you can. Wisdom is about the good life. About a skill for navigating the twists and turns of life. And Ecclesiastes points us towards recognizing something we have every reason to neglect and deny. Towards recognizing the fact of our death and what our death does to the things we would otherwise look to to find meaning in life. That's what Ecclesiastes is going to offer us in the series. We're in week number two out of six this morning. And we're turning to the first major theme in this book. And that is the theme of work occupation, our labor, our toil, as it's often translated. Work's a huge part of our lives, right? By work, I mean whatever it is that you're responsible for, that you're pursuing, that fills up your time, that orients your life, your primary occupation, whether that is as a student in training for something, in, a, in an office, cubicle farm, in the creative pursuits that I know some of you are after, or in, in the home where you're bringing order to a family's life and caring for children. Work is a huge part of our lives, whether you're paid for what you do by money or paid for what you do by grades or paid for what you do by the undying gratitude of children who never fail to notice your tireless service of them. Work is a huge part of our life for much more many more reasons than just the time and the energy that we spend on it. Work is a huge part of our identity for good or ill. Work, what we do, is how we tell people who we are when we first meet them. It's one of the first things you ask about someone when you're being polite and trying to get to know them. So what do you do? And work is a, is a constant source of frustration. It's unsatisfying. It's stressful. It's disappointing. And I could go on and on, couldn't I? I'll be honest. Most people, majority of people, report being unhappy in their jobs. And that's not a new problem. That is the problem Ecclesiastes puts on display in vivid, high definition for us this morning. It's the first thing that the book unpacks for us. Starts in chapter 1. We're going to look at chapter 1 this morning, beginning at the very first verse. Look at the first section of chapter 1 and then hop over to a section in chapter 2. Both of these sections are framed by a question. 
The question comes up in verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here's your question for today. What's the use? What's the payoff? What's the gain? And what I do? That question comes up in verse 3 of chapter 1. Comes up again at the, near the end of chapter 2. Verse 22 of chapter 2. After going through all the examples we're going to track with this morning, same question comes up. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? There's your question. We're going to try to understand it this morning under the sun, which is where our author is pointing us, as if God doesn't exist, as if what we know and experience here in this life on this plane is all there is. We're going to consider work as under the sun with our author, And then we're going to step back, by contrast, we're going to look at work in the Lord. What if under the sun is not all there is? What if there is one who is eternal, who sees everything, who offers us the opportunity to do things that will last? That's what we'll consider second this morning. So, I want to begin with work under the sun. And here's the message. Under the sun, our work is a dead end. I want to begin by reading the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now in honor of God's word while I read. This is the depressing but realistic and wise word of the Lord about life under the sun. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea. But the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it's said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the things we mentioned last week when we were doing a kind of an overview of this book is that the book opens with a central claim. It's one we just read together, that everything is vanity, a word that means meaninglessness or emptiness. And the first example of the emptiness that is life under the sun is our toil or our work. If all we have is what we see from our earthbound, time-bound perspective, what's the payoff for what we spend our time and energy doing every day? 
What's the use of it? What good is it? The answer is, there is no use in it. There is no good in it. It's vain. I want to point you to a few examples, four examples that come out in this text and in the the other section in chapter 2. Four examples of the vanity or emptiness of work under the sun, as if God is not. Four examples and one underlying cause. Here's the first example. It comes out in the first several verses we read together. We work to get things done, but there's always more to do. Here's example number one. Why do we work? What do we look for and hope for in our work? Well, sometimes, for some of us especially, we want to get things done. We get pleasure out of just getting things done. But there's always more to do. Did you notice that right after the question in verse 3, what's the use of all the toil by which a man toils under the sun? What good is it? Right after that question, his examples, what he goes straight to, are some nature analogies. He starts describing the sun and its rising and its setting and the wind that blows around and around and around. He talks about the sea that flows but never, the rivers that flow into the sea but the sea never fills up. He talks about examples from nature. If you're familiar much with the the Old Testament, you know that there's several places where examples almost exactly like this come up as a good thing, as a chance for recognizing that God is powerful, that all of nature is upheld by him and guided by him. So Psalm 19 celebrates the fact that the sun rises and sets, rejoices like a strong man to run its course across the sky. It's a good thing. It shows God's power. Job 38, we looked at together the other day, not long ago, just a few weeks ago. Job 38 celebrates the fact that God is in control of the seas, that, that we think of them as powerful and unmanageable, but God treats them like a baby. He gives birth to them, wraps them up in a diaper, puts them in a playpen, says, come here and know further. But here, the regularity of the seas, the fact that they're bound in, that water just keeps flowing into them, but they don't get full, it's an example of weariness. What's his point? Remember the context. He's answering a question. What good is all of our work under the sun? And what he's highlighting to answer that question is monotony. That just like the natural world just keeps on going, everything in its place, nothing really ever changing. So our work each day feels empty, pointless, routine. Everything just keeps going, day after day, always the same, while our lives come and go. Generation comes, generation goes, everything else just keeps on keeping on. One of the main attractions in our work, one of the reasons that we get up in the morning, what we're hoping for when we take on new jobs is a sense of accomplishment. All of us, to some extent, what we want is the satisfaction of a job that's well done, of a job that's done, of the ability to trace our progress from the beginning when we first start working on something to the end when we can see it as a completed whole. That's what we want. Some of you actually enjoy cutting the grass for this very reason. I've never, I've never understood that myself. Some people actually like the the little lines that you can make back and forth and watch the the tall grass get taken over by the short grass. 
My wife's a big checklist person. She loves a checklist or a to-do list that she can scratch out. She gets a great pleasure out of just checking off each list as she moves down the list. But to whatever extent you're wired up that way and you enjoy the pleasure of getting things done, maybe even especially for those of you who are really into that, here's what you know, that there's always another checklist, that the grass just keeps on growing, that even those of you who are doing jobs where they're very project-oriented and you start out with a project, you bring it to a completion, you always know that on the back end of that project is another project. We work for the joy of getting things done. Sometimes we get a little taste of it, but it's just a tease, isn't it? And those of you who work with children, those of you who spend much of your time caring for children perhaps know this best of all, that there is no end to the clothes and towels to wash, to the floors to clean, to the meals to prepare and clean up after, to the early mornings that you got to face hours before you wish you did, and it's never over. We work to get things done, but like the natural world around us, there's always more to do. Here's another example. We work to create for the joy of innovation. But nothing's really new. Now this, this is a joy that's especially, especially dear to, to many of you. I know we have a lot of creative people here creating maybe in the music biz, but also in, in tech and uh, writing new programs. And some of you are very creative in your, your decorating abilities and your cooking or whatever. I know we have a lot of people who really get joy out of trying new things, out of bringing something new into being. It's one of the most common motivations to work. But what our author is saying is that there's really nothing new. That at best, you're reproducing something maybe you didn't know had already been done. At best, you're just sort of rearranging some of the materials that were already there for you to work with. How he puts it, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new. Under the sun. Verse 10 says, Is there a thing of which it said, See, this is new? It's not new. It's been done already in the ages before us. I mean, think about, think about music. Somebody had the idea some years ago, Why don't we play rock music with a banjo? That'll sound new. And it does, until it isn't, until it's cliche. Some great music out there that plays rock music with a banjo, but at one level, even though that was new for a while to do, at one level, aren't these guys just singing songs about life, love, relationships, to stringed instruments, much like the psalmist who used strings to sing about the same things thousands and thousands of years ago? Technology is booming right now, right? We have new gadgets. That's new, isn't it? Sort of. But you point to examples of what's new about the things we're making now, a new ability to communicate. But what are we communicating? They're communicating in caves with drawings. Doing the same things, even if we've got new gadgets to do it. What are we doing but 
building weapons that can destroy things on a scale no one has ever imagined before. But, you know, at one point, the bow and arrow was brand new. What if we attached a string to this stick and put something sharp in it? Used for the same purpose, right? At some level, we are seeing examples of things that are new, but at another level, we're still doing the same things with them. In a broad perspective, it has already been in the ages before us. Here's another example, a third example. We work to make a name for ourselves. We work to make a name for ourselves, but no one will remember us. Our author did this. He worked to establish himself. Later on in chapter 2, in verse 9, he describes himself as one who became great and surpassed all who were before him in Jerusalem. He built a reputation no one had ever seen or heard of before him. He was a guy who arrived. And he gets that that's what everybody wants. So later on in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. What is he getting at? What drives us in our work is our desire to outdo one another, to be different, to be exceptional, to be a rung above the rest. That's what we want. That's what all of us want. And it drives us in our work, whether our work is as an executive somewhere, as a graduate student somewhere, as a homemaker somewhere. C.S. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Isn't that true? When is it ever enough, though? When do you ever really get there? When is your name, the name you want for yourself, the reputation you're building by your work, ever secure? Take the example of Brian Williams at NBC. You guys have been tracking this story earlier this year. Stunning example of something that's happened over and over and over in the history of the world. A man who seemed to have it all, who didn't have enough. Williams won awards for his coverage of Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. For his on-the-ground coverage, both on video and through his, his journalism, his interviews, the, the the, the world that he was able to portray through his coverage of that event, won in this prestigious Peabody Award, it solidified him as the successor to Tom Brokaw on NBC's Nightly News. In fact, as the, as the main guy at NBC's Nightly News, his show was consistently the most viewed out of all the network shows. He was at the top. He signed a lucrative multi-year extension at the end of 2014. And then, in January of this year, he got caught. He got caught for making up stories about his reporting in the Iraq War more than 10 years earlier. Stories about taking fire while he was on a helicopter attached to a military unit. A fire that forced them to land when actually he didn't. 
Now, before that story broke, Brian Williams was listed as the 23rd most trusted person in America. Did you know that they have rankings like that? They do. The 23rd most trusted person in America. By the day after the story had broken, he'd fallen more than 800 spots to a range that he shared with Willie Robertson of A&E's Duck Dynasty. You heard me right. Now, why would a guy with his accomplishments, with his pedigree, with his credentials and his opportunities, risk everything to embellish a story? I think it's because he knew implicitly what Ecclesiastes points to here. He wanted a name for himself. And the reason our quest to make names for ourselves is futile and never enough is that the memory others have of us never lasts. Verse 11 of chapter 1. There is no remembrance of former things, no remembrance of award-winning hurricane Katrina coverage, no remembrance of, of industry-leading viewing numbers, no remembrance of who's trusted more than whom. There is no remembrance of former things. Or of later things yet to be among those who come after. It's never enough because no one will remember even the best of what we do. Here's a last example. We work to build something great. We work to build something. But we won't get to enjoy it. We work for the pleasure of building something great but we won't get to enjoy it. For, he, for this, we flip ahead to chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Again, he takes up the subject of work. He continues the theme of the first part of chapter 1, and he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who'll come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. Emptiness, meaninglessness. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Best case scenario you build something that does good, that's profitable, effective at whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, noticed by other people and celebrated for it. At best, that's what you do, what you set out to do. But in the end, you just die and someone else gets it. He started this section with a question. Chapter 1, verse 3 What good is our work? What's the point? What's the use? He finishes here with the same question in verse 22. And in verse 23, we get his summary answer. What do we gain? What's the payoff of all the work we do under the sun with all of our time and effort and energy? Here's what you gain. Days full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation 
And even in the night, his heart does not rest. And this also is vanity. What do you gain for all that you do with your time and your effort? Stress, that's what you gain. Worry, sleepless nights. There's your four examples. Work under the sun is vanity. But why? What is it that makes our work like this? We all experience work like this. Surely you get what he's talking about. That's shown up in your experience. But why? Why is a meaningful, satisfying, joy-producing job so hard to come by? Well, there are lots of reasons that can be complicated and very specific to you and to your situation, but, but for Ecclesiastes, there is one underlying reason that we have to get here this morning. We have to get it. It's the key to seeing this perspective under the sun, and it's the key to seeing the beauty of Jesus who transforms what's possible for our lives under the sun. The reason work is what it is in our experience, whether we recognize it or not, the reason underneath the surface is that we work to protect ourselves from death. And work cannot protect us. Our work is a dead end because our lives end in death. It's what he points to in the fact that no one will be remembered by those who come later and the fact that a generation comes and a generation goes and the fact that whatever you build you're just going to die and leave to somebody else death is all over this book it's the thief that lies behind the emptiness that steals what we would enjoy and leaves us empty what he gets what's true in all of our experience whether we realize it or not is that one of the things we're looking for in what we do, in our toil, our occupations, what we're looking for is a chance to justify our lives, to give our lives some meaning that death can't steal away, to make ourselves worthy. One of my favorite examples of someone who got this problem with crystal clarity, one of my favorite authors, Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy. So Tolstoy is known to us, especially by writing two of the greatest novels ever written by anybody in any era. He wrote War and Peace and he wrote Anna Karenina. And only a few years after he finished these two books that would be enough to establish anybody ever and at the top of their field, to be envied by so many others, just, just a few years after finishing those works, he went through a spiritual crisis. It was a crisis inspired by a question he could not shake. A question that he says, with, without an answer to which one cannot live, in his confessions that he wrote a few years after these novels, he says, here's the question. What will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything? Why do anything? Even write books that people will be talking about for a thousand years after I'm gone. Why do any of it? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Destroy. 
that question gripped him, took him to the brink of suicide, though he had accomplished more in his field than most people ever will. Now, friends, maybe you've never seriously asked Tolstoy's question. Maybe you think that in your work that feels dissatisfying to you now, what you really need is a vacation or just to finish your training and actually start doing your job or to get the promotion or the new job, a new job altogether. Maybe that's what you think is your problem. But you're facing Tolstoy's dilemma whether you recognize it or not because you are going to die. And if all there is to the world is what you see now, what you experience now under the sun, then nothing, nothing you do now will ever be enough for you. Because it cannot protect you from what's coming. All of it, even the memory of it, will be erased by death. I heard one preacher give a great example of this. Now, some of you are too young to even remember the existential crisis that could come upon losing the work that you thought you had saved on your computer. In the days before cloud storage, this was a serious keep-you-up-at-night problem where you could be writing a document that would not auto-save. Back in the day, documents didn't auto-save. So you could be writing a document that you've forgotten to save And then at the conclusion of an entire day of work, maybe productive work, something could happen on your system or you hit the wrong button and it could disappear. I've had that happen to me. It's awful. Because what you recognize is that everything I just did today is gone. Which means it's as if I never did it. Which means it's empty. It's vain. It's meaningless. Because of where it ended. Your life is going to end. Everything you do in it will be gone. It will disappear. And if all there is is what's under the sun, what's the point of doing it to begin with? Here's another example. Just six months ago, people were hailing the University of Kentucky Wildcats basketball team as the greatest college team to ever take the court. On this team were around eight players who had high draft NBA futures. You only need five to play. That means they were really, really good. And this team went undefeated. They went undefeated for more games than any team had ever strung together as victories ever. Until they reached the final four. And when they reached the final four, they lost. Now, what's the story of the 2014 2015 Kentucky Wildcats basketball team? Nobody's talking about the greatest team ever. Nobody's talking about the fact that they accomplished what no one else had. They're defined. By where they ended. Losers. Just like a couple hundred other teams who played last year. If your life ends in death, if that's really all there is, there is nothing you can accomplish that matters at all. 
there's life under the sun. There is work under the sun. But in the darkness that Ecclesiastes means to help us see, there are occasional shafts of light that cut through. One of those shafts of light comes immediately after the verses we've just read. Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and what? Find enjoyment in his toil. What? The toil that you've just spent two chapters convincing us has no meaning at all? We're supposed to find joy in it? In verse 23, we're told that toil, all of it, is a vexation that keeps you up at night. And now we're supposed to find joy in what we do? How do we get from the vexation of verse 23 to the joy of verse 24? The text says nothing about getting a new job. You don't need a new work situation. What you need, what all of us need, is a new perspective. What we need is a perspective that's not shaped as if God is not. A perspective that isn't shaped as if what we see in the here and now is all there is. But a perspective that takes God to be and to be for us. So if we bring work that is otherwise done under the sun and make it work that is done in the Lord, our work gets transformed from a dead end to an opportunity. Just to feed your thoughts, to feed your conversations with, this, with each other for later today, I want to I close with three examples of the opportunity that your work becomes for you if you do it not under the sun but in the Lord. Three opportunities, quickly. First, you've got an opportunity for rest. Your work is an opportunity for rest. Now, I know that's a little bit ironic. It's intentionally ironic. What does it mean that our work can be rest? What I mean is that that our work, the things you do, whatever it is that fills your day, your work provides you with an opportunity every day to press deeper into the rest that Jesus came to offer us. Friends, what the New Testament tells us is that into the monotony of generations that rise and fall, come and go, into the monotony of things that just stay the same, the wind that just blows around and around and around and nothing's ever different, into that monotony, something new has come. Into that monotony, a light has shined that the darkness could not overpower. Into that monotony, God himself has broken in. He has come. He's taken on a body just like ours. He has subjected himself to a life under the sun just like ours. He has lived the life that we were supposed to live without sin, fully glorifying God, not trying to make a name for himself. He has lived the life we should have, a life just like ours but perfect. And he died a death a death just as real, just as bodily as the one that's waiting for us and threatening to steal all the meaning out of our life. Jesus died that death. But into the monotony of death that comes for every person who's ever lived, that hangs like a, like a threat over every one of our heads, like a dark cloud that could wipe us out. Into that monotony, Jesus did not stay dead. 
The gospel tells us he rose again. Proving not just his power over the grave, but the, but the perfect acceptability of the sacrifice he gave to God for our sin. Because ultimately, the Bible tells us we deserve the death that's coming for us. We have rejected the God who is the source of all life. We have chosen to live under the sun as if he doesn't exist. We've chosen to try to make a name for ourselves rather than to glorify him. And death is what we've asked for. But Christ has died the death that was meant for us. And in his resurrection, a promise is offered to us that death does not have to be the end. Now, in your work, where does this come home? I've promised there's an opportunity in your work to rest. Friends, next time, tomorrow morning, maybe even this afternoon, you're going to do something that you're responsible for that you can't not do, and it's going to feel worthless. Or you're going to face a responsibility that feels too big for you or that you think you're not going to be able to do well, and you're going to feel small and insignificant in it. And when you feel what you are going to feel, I want you to see it not for what it is under the sun, but as a reminder that you need Christ and He is for you. You're going to continue to be frustrated, disappointed, exhausted, and prideful in the things that you do. But when you notice it, what I want you to notice is not what's true under the sun, but the opportunity you have in that moment to give thanks to God that He has not left you in this world defined by death. That He has not left you to fight death on your own by your work. But He has forgiven you And given you new life in Jesus. See, what you're feeling behind the disappointment that you're going to feel, behind the frustration, what you're feeling is the weight of a reality. You cannot defeat death by your work. That's what's showing up every time you're disappointed in yourself. Every time your work doesn't seem meaningful enough to have taken that whole day. So every time you feel it, I want you to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Keep working by all means, but work with me. My burden is easy. It's light. Because Jesus has defeated death, you don't have to, and you don't have to even try through your work. And when you recognize the gap in your experience between the joy that should be yours and what you're feeling, what you're seeing, What you're experiencing is an opportunity to press deeper into Christ. Here's another perspective shift. You've got an opportunity for gratitude. The best way to get happy in your job is not to need your job to make you happy. The best way to get happy in it, the best way to live in the world of verse 24 in chapter 2, where you find enjoyment in your toil, is not to need your job to make you happy. I think we should see dissatisfaction, a distaste for our work as normal in the world we live in. It's fu- our work really is futile for what we normally ask it to do. We normally ask it 
to give our lives some meaning that death won't erase. We ask it to save us from death. It can't do that. So, friends, when you're preoccupied by the things you wish weren't true about your jobs, when you're noticing what your job isn't more than what your job is, in those times, what you're, what you're experiencing is a failure to remember Because of Christ, you don't have to turn to your work to save you. Therefore, you're set free to be grateful for what your work is rather than distracted by what your work isn't. If Jesus has covered the death problem, then all of a sudden, you're set free to notice what is good about your work. So what has God given you? Verse 24 says we should enjoy our toil because it comes as a gift from the hand of God. What has God given you? Has he given you a chance to help people in what you do? Has he given you everything you need? Has he given you enough money to be generous to other people? Has he given you a chance to have relationships at work where you get to minister to people, actually care for people? Are you getting to do things that you enjoy doing? Things that you're really well suited to do? Things that you're capable of? Do you have time in your work left over for friends and for your local church? If Jesus has taken care of your death problem, you don't need your work for that. Therefore, you don't need to be preoccupied by all that your work isn't. It couldn't ever be all that you could want it to be. Just give that up and start thinking about what opportunities you've got there to be grateful What you may need is not a new job, but a new perspective on the job you've got. And here's the last thing. Close here. You've got an opportunity for worship. The end of Ecclesiastes, if you read the whole book in light of the very end, the very end is a call to fear God, keep His commandments, to take God and His reality and put it into your life, to live everything in your life through the lens of Him being real, seeing everything that you're doing lasting forever and asking you to be with him. You've got an opportunity in your work, even in the things that no one else will see, even in the things that you're having to do over and over and over again. You've got an opportunity in your work to glorify the God who endures, the God who sees all. You want to do something lasting, something beautiful and meaningful and worthwhile? Is that what you want? then do what you were made to do. Glorify the one who made you and who sees you. You can work as an expression of your love for God. It's a theme that Paul picks up in all of his letters. Colossians 3, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's about Him. It's not about you. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is writing about the truth of Jesus' resurrection, when he's trying to drive that truth into our lives, where he ends, a beautiful chapter on the promise of resurrection is with a call to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord, your labor, 
Your toil is not vain. Christ lives. And there's your opportunity for a life full of work that glorifies Him. Work in the Lord. Father, our eyes are focused with much greater vision and clarity on the reality of each day's trouble, on the reality of what isn't seen or noticed, of what doesn't last, of what fails to deliver. Those things we see easily enough. What we have trouble seeing, what, you, what we ask you to give us eyes to see, is the magnificent work that Jesus has done for us that makes a new sort of work possible for us. Help us to see our lives as in the Lord and to glorify you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.